of Saul at the request of the people, and David then replacing Saul in the kingdom, uniting under David, and ultimately coming to full unity uh, under the reign of his son Solomon. Solomon is the absolute peak of the kingdom of Israel. There's, there's no time that ever exceeded the time of Solomon, just in terms of the peace, the prosperity, and, and, and just the, the dominance that they had over the surrounding nations around them. Their borders were expanding, and, and the, the, the nation was wealthy, and the wisdom in the land was to be envied by those around them. And because of Solomon's idolatry, the kingdom pretty quickly split apart. And that, the initial kings of that split were uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and his, uh, his enemy, uh, who God had risen up against him, Jeroboam. Jeroboam became the king of the plot of land that would have been Israel to the north, it's that red section there, and then Judah to the south, that purple section. Uh, the kings of Judah, a lot of them were faithful kings. The kings of Israel were all unfaithful kings. Remember, the time of uh, Judah, in contrast to Israel in the time of Ahab, Asa was the reigning king for the lives of most of these kings uh, that you see in, in the north. And Asa would have been the king even leading into the time of Ahab, followed by Jehoshaphat. Both of them were great kings. Judah was being reformed. The nation was getting back to the law of God, and God was blessing them lavishly, restoring the dominance of Judah in, in incredible ways, while Israel, in the meantime, was just falling apart at the seams. The, the nation was plummeting. Every red X you'll see on the right side is a dynasty change because God was having to promise to wipe out the lineage of these kings one after another because they were so wicked and abominable in God's eyes and in their influence on the people. And you'll notice Ahab, that last king we have, reigned for 22 years. And it's in his reign that we get into chapter 17, whose wife was Jezebel, who was notorious for uh, inciting Ahab uh, to take his rebellion against the Lord further. But I want you to think about this. This time frame here from Jeroboam to Ahab is about 60 years. So I want you to think about Elijah for a second. For about 1,000 years, God has been working to bring his kingdom to the position that it seemed he had originally promised. For about a thousand years, it's taken to do that. And in one generation, it's gone. One generation. And Elijah, I don't know how old he was when he appears on the scene here in chapter 17, but you know, at the very least, his father would have been alive in the times of Solomon. So you just imagine the kind of zeal someone like this would have to think God's promises had just been so near to us and now it's just fallen apart before us, right? And you, you think about, again, something I mentioned in our last lesson, hearing about all the reforms of Judah, all the good things of Judah, and people of Israel were rightfully defecting to Judah. Many Levites were going to Judah to properly serve in the temple system, right? So you've got Israel that's getting worse and worse and worse. Judah's getting better and better and better. If you want to serve God, what, <laughs> what seems to be the better place you'd want to be if you want to serve God? But in chapter 17, now Elijah the Tishbite, who is of the settlers of Gideon, uh, Gilead, said to Ahab. Something I want to focus on for this first point, God's power to forgive. I think we learn a lot about God's character from how Elijah embodied that character. In James chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 17, it's referenced that 
Elijah didn't just call on this famine just randomly without any, uh, any work beforehand of faith, but rather that he prayed earnestly for this to happen. Uh, let's read the text here, and then we'll talk more about it. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who is of the settlers of Gideon, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. So, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. In James chapter 5, when it talks about Elijah praying earnestly, quickly transitions into turning a sinner from the error of his way and thus covering a multitude of sins. The context of James 5 is the earnestness that we have to bring people into reconciliation with God, bringing people back into a relationship that maybe they once had that they've forsaken. When you think about how much Elijah loves this nation, like not just ideally like wanting to get back to the prosperity of Israel, like the national abundance that they had in Solomon's time, but how much he loved the people. Think about what he could have said to Ahab, right? Ahab, it said in the previous chapter, was worse than all the kings before him. Not only did he serve the idols that Jeroboam had once built in Dan and Bethel, but he even had built a shrine of Baal in Samaria, the capital of Israel. So you have to think, like, the first thing that I would probably think to say is your disgrace to the throne of Israel. Or how about praying that God destroy him and then replace him with a better king? Think about our nation right now. And I'm, I'm not making any commentary on uh, who's ruling, but how many people hope and pray that God would put somebody else into a position of authority, right? But it's Throughout this, this interaction with Elijah and the king of Israel, Elijah never tells Ahab to stop being king. He never tells him that he can't be king. God never infers that he would rather someone else be king. God is earnestly seeking for Ahab and everybody else to maintain their position, but just realize their need for him. Because ultimately, ultimately, God was ruling Israel still through the prophets. And the kings were simply stewards of the nation under the oversight of God as their king. Um, and Ahab, how long do you think it took for him to take this seriously? So Baal is like the god of fertility, right? That included like children, obviously, but it also included like the land and rain and seasons and prosperity coming from the land. So Ahab obviously is not somebody who takes God very seriously. So you imagine it would have been easy to ignore this initially, right? How long do you think it would have taken before he begins to realize that really it's really not going to rain until Elijah actually says it's going to rain again? Neither dew nor rain would come until Elijah would speak it to be so. This, this went on for three and a half years, by the way. Again, in James 5, it, it references that. Three and a half years. God's willing to look like the bad guy. He's willing to risk 
all of his kindness being overlooked, all of the, the, the riches of his tolerance and patience, he's willing to risk all of that to be overlooked, to look like the bad guy, so that a sinner can have the opportunity to understand their ways and repent. How often do we think that God's way of restoring sinners will not work unless we're viewed in a positive light in the process? Like, have you ever heard with disfellowshipping from like a member of a church who's living in sin because the other person never responded, well, it just doesn't work. Our relationships weren't good enough for that to have worked. Or I can't rebuke this person for their sin because I'm not, I'm not close enough with that person. They have to like me in the process. And I've got, to, I've got to figure out a way to say this where I maintain in their eyes, they, they still have to like me or else they might not listen. Can I suggest to you that that may come from a lack of faith? Because it wasn't about Ahab viewing Elijah as the good guy. In fact, it was important that Ahab be willing to risk looking like the bad guy. And there's no indication that Ahab knew Elijah already, that they had some great relationship already, and this would come as a great shock. Elijah was willing to risk looking like the bad guy, even though his, his love for Ahab and the nation was a pure reflection of God's love for Ahab and for the nation. Who's really suffering here? Who's really suffering here? I mean, Ahab would have had resources, right? Like, they would have had things that they could draw from to continue to live and survive. Whereas, you see that Elijah is having to go and just live out in the wilderness, not even, it seems, in any kind of home or shelter, just living out in the open, being taken care of by, like, birds and a brook. Another thing about Elijah that we learn here, and I think this gives insight into the kind of man that Elijah was, in Leviticus chapter 26, the second promise of discipline that God uh, gave Israel as a means of understanding his method of bringing them back, God promised out of five steps of discipline, the second was famine. I would think that the nation is so far gone, you'd be way past step two, right? Like maybe step four by now. No, Elijah calls on step two. But with that, that Elijah is calling on God simply to be faithful to his promises. Like Elijah's not doing or praying for anything that God has not already promised that he wants to do. Elijah is simply aligning himself as much as he can and as, as fervently as he can and as passionately as he can putting himself into the position of God's past promises with the assurance that this lack of faith in the nation and their seeming success in their apostasy without any apparent consequence right now, that God is still living, that God is still king, and that God is still faithful. And let me, let me just ask you this. Do you ever feel like your passion for God is lost because of the people around you? Like maybe the people around you aren't really serving God like you would hope they would, or even with people serving God, like do you ever feel like it's hard for you to maintain your focus on the Lord? You think the blessing that Elijah was under was that he had no choice but to base his faith entirely on the living character of God. 
And serving God for Elijah was not just a thing of law, it was a thing of God's character and promise, right? Another thing about this. Elijah had to go east of the Jordan, so it's interesting that he doesn't tell him to go in Judah and have a good time. Uh, You know, like, enjoy being around maybe some obedient people for a while and see the glory of the hope of what you wish this nation would be. Go experience that for a little bit. Maybe that'll get you more excited for what could happen if there's repentance in the nation. No, it was important that Elijah not be taken out of the likened suffering of his countrymen. So this, this might sound strange. If, if you've been here in the Bible class, this, this might make more sense. When Saul went to see the medium at Endor, the spiritist, he was like devastated and emotionally overwhelmed. He was like falling on the ground when he heard that he was going to die in the battle with the Philistines. And he was exhausted. He hadn't eaten any food. He was emotionally overwhelmed. And the medium sees this and says, let me give you some food to eat so your strength can return to you. You know, that was the worst advice she could have possibly have given him. Because Saul needed to experience all the sorrow and weakness associated with the reality of his condition. And it was, it was very important that he experience that to the point where it would drive him to repent. What seemed like kindness was actually a curse. Because Saul then ate, got up, and just went on his way as if everything was all okay. You know what we learn about Jesus here? Because, you know, Jesus just wasn't like that. That Jesus, when he went away in the wilderness for a while, hidden away from people, he wasn't being taken care of by birds and, like, water. He was living off of the word of God. For 40 days he's out there and Satan says, why don't you just turn these stones into bread? you know why it was so important for him to not do that? Because at that time, it was important that he feel what it's like to suffer as a sinner. In order to have the compassion that he needed to have, to feel the urgency of restoration, to be, to be kept in the position of the momentum of needing God's forgiveness, he needed to feel every ounce of what that felt like. And so did Elijah. And I'm going to suggest to you that Elijah was not being fed ultimately by these birds, but by the living word of God. One last thing. Did God need people to take care of Elijah? You know these birds were unclean birds too. One one thing to commend to you, and this will be expanded on through this series with the idea of clean and unclean. I think one of the ultimate things we we gain from the New Testament looking back on the clean and unclean laws, especially Hebrews 13, where we're invited to go outside the camp where the body of the sin sacrifice is burned, the place where Jesus went, I just commend this to you to think about. The point of all of that is I love people so much when I see that God loves me despite my uncleanliness, how far he's willing to go to restore me, that I go outside the camp, I go to the unclean place, and I suffer there. My body goes there, but my heart stays in the clean place. My heart, my soul, my spirit, it stays in the clean place. 
So then I can work to suffer to bring people to God who are outside the gate and bring them into the, into the clean place. See, Elijah was willing to suffer while his heart remained true to the Lord outside the camp so that those who were outside could be brought in. Let's continue the reading. Verse 8 through 16. God's power to give. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please give me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, uh, you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty. According to the word of the Lord, she spoke through Elijah. Jesus actually talks about this in Luke chapter 4. He reads Isaiah chapter 61, the first few verses. He talks about how he was sent to heal the brokenhearted, to free the prisoners, to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And the people are amazed at what he's saying and what he's teaching. But then he tells them that these days that they were in were like the times of Elijah. He says there were many widows in Israel in the times of Elijah. And yet he was sent to none of them, but instead to a widow of Zarephath. You know what's interesting? Zarephath was in Sidon. And if you look back in verse 31 of chapter 16, did you catch who also is from Sidon? Chapter 16, verse 31? Jezebel. <laughs> Elijah is in the territory of one of Israel's greatest enemies, right under the nose of the people who are, who are from there, Jezebel uh, particularly. Um, there are a lot of interesting coincidences about this. Um, and I think we can attribute those coincidences to just being more than just random happenstance. You notice that when he comes to the gate of the city, there's this widow picking up sticks. Just so happens that at this moment, this is in preparation of her last meal, her last thread of hope before she and her household have her, their last meal before they die. It just, just so happens, right? You know what was also important about Elijah being in that wilderness for all that time? God was working. God was working. All Elijah needed to do was listen and keep himself in a sober mind of being ready to act on God's promises, listening to the Lord, and he would be exactly where he needed to be at exactly the right time to help exactly the right person. Another thing about Elijah's journey there, it was about 60 to 80 miles to go from where he was by the brook Cherith on the east side to Sidon, which is northwest 
on the higher points of the borders of Israel. It's about a 60-mile walk, and he just, he just goes. So at the end of this 60- to 80-mile walk, he finds the exact widow God had commanded. Another thing about this, did she get some divine revelation telling her to be expecting Elijah? Like, had she heard a voice that told her that a man was going to come and he was going to ask her for these things and to be ready to be respond in a certain way? There's no indication of that, right? So how is it God had commanded this woman to take care of Elijah? It's providence. Her circumstances, where she would be, the heart condition that God was working in her to have, and, and, and just the, the desperation that she was under. God was cultivating all of those things to be prepared for just exactly the right alignment for Elijah and, and her to interact in a way that proved his glory. Um, sorry, taking a minute to transition my notes here. Uh, one of the things about this that I think is important uh, to consider in relation to God's character is how desperate God was to interact and give. How desperate God was to interact with somebody and give. In Romans chapter 10, it talks about how God had held up his hands and held out his hands to a disobedient and obstinate people all day long. Um, I don't know if you've ever had anything that you knew could help someone that they weren't willing to receive but you knew how important this was to give and how much it could help someone, so you found somebody else to give it to who could at least appreciate it a little bit more than the first person you tried to give it to. Uh, an example that comes to mind is a few years ago, I saw like this uh, crowdfunding thing where there was somebody who had tested a cure for cancer, and it was really simple, uh, really wasn't very expensive, and in their view, like this, this cure that they had found was going to revolutionize the medical world because of how inexpensive and simple this cure was. And they had tested it on multiple cases, and they'd found the results to be consistent. And they could not get funding or attention from any like big corporation, right? So they were resorting to crowdfunding. And the idea was they had so much passion for their, their view of how this could change the world and how much it could help people they were unwilling to yield to the inability that they had to connect with the bigger corporations, and so they were resorting to any possible way they could find to get some funding for this project, right? Something we need to know about God is how desperate he is to connect with people and give the things of his glory away to somebody who will be willing to value those things, right? Israel and all the widows in Israel, they were totally unwilling to value God's grace, but God was working circumstances where he could find even just one person, one, one widow. And if she could just understand what God was willing to give and who God is, that was worth it to him. And to put it more personally, have you ever had thoughts like in talking to people about the gospel? Uh, after a lot of people don't listen, you think, well, people just really aren't willing to listen, willing to listen anymore, Right? Like, I've tried talking to people within my sphere, and that just, it hasn't really worked. So people, people just aren't willing to with, listen, and I'll just stop. And your excitement for sharing the gospel diminishes, and you stop bringing up the gospel to people. You just kind of live your life. Everything's fine. But you know God's just not that way. You know, to God, the value 
the value of what he's seeking to give, it's so precious to him, he's unwilling to give up his persistence to give it. He'll find somebody, period. He'll scour the earth. He'll keep pressing the same people over and over and over again. He will make circumstances by providence and through the prophets or even when nobody understands what's going on, he will make his own set of circumstances to help people appreciate the gift of his grace. This is going to be followed by chapter 18 where he eventually sends rain on the earth and Ahab and the people do nothing. Ahab returns, Ahab calls for a- or Elijah calls for Ahab. Elijah calls for the nation. Elijah calls on God to call down fire from heaven on the altar. And then Elijah has the prophets of Baal killed. And then Elijah prays that it rain again on the earth. Then Elijah goes with Ahab back to Samaria. They didn't ask for it. They did nothing. They didn't even repent to cause those things to happen. It's so valuable to God. The gospel is so precious. God is going to find a way. And God does not view it as something that is only as valuable as people think it is. And then stop there. If we really know God, if we really know God, and if we really believe the gospel, we'll never quit. We'll never stop trying. But it's only if we really know God. If we really understand the power of his promises in our own lives. Because you know what this says about Elijah? Is he understood how God had healed his own broken heart. How God was the sustainer of his life. And his desire to share those things with others could not be stopped. So, another point that I think can be relevant. Why could this widow appreciate the things that uh, Elijah was promising? Because she was as good as dead. She had no more bread, no more flour, no more oil. It was just her last little bit, and that was it. And she was planning to die. She could appreciate because she had nothing left. And she just had some some mustard seed of faith. She could value that it was God who was doing these things to bless and to sustain her. She had no husband. seems nobody else in the territory where she lived cared about her, was going to share anything with her. Because she was as good as dead, she could appreciate these things. That was the problem with Israel. That's my problem. You know, in the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says to even pray for daily bread. I don't know if you've actually, like, done that, where every day you start your day praying, God, please give me bread today. But if we really understand how dead we are, because of the wrath of God against sin, how unworthy we are, to even receive food at all, we can perceive to be an act of astonishing grace. Think about it, the world should be in this condition all the time, shouldn't it? You know, it's not as if God was being harsh on Israel, but then the rest of the world had no accountability to God, right? The point was, when people are unfaithful to God, here's what should happen. When people are unfaithful to God, the earth should stop giving anything anymore, ever again. And yet, how filled are our grocery stores? How filled are our fridges? Does that matter? 
Is that gracious for God to do those things? Folks, how thankful can we be for those things? Right? It's not just that those things happen. It's that God is gracious to an astonishing degree. But it's when we realize we're as good as dead that we can have the gratitude that leads us to truly be in awe of him. Um, so every day she would need to do this. And one of the things that Elijah told her was that this was not going to run out until water came on the face of the earth again, rain came on the face of the earth. So one, one last point about this. God's commands are themselves promises. And I think that's something important we learn about this. God's commands are always promises. So he was telling her to get him some bread, but her initial reaction was, I can't do that for you. I only have enough for me. And he said, well, make one for me first, then for yourself, because here's what God has said. If you do this, it's never going to run out until the time comes when rain falls on the earth again. The command was itself a promise. It's a lot like in the Gospels when Jesus feeds 5,000. He says, you feed them. The command itself was a promise. The promise was, do this, and inherent within his character, he will provide for the things that are promised, right? The task was just, just listen, just trust. God will work it out. It will be fulfilled. All she had to do was just listen and do it. God would provide. It wasn't some great act of glorious obedience on her part. God was the one giving, and God was the one working. All she had to do was listen. One example of why this can be so important. Philippians says multiple times, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And my reaction is, but God, I can't. I, even when I begin to try to have joy, it's so quickly taken away from me. How do I rejoice in the Lord always? I don't even seem to have the capacity or resource of mind or heart to do that. The command is a promise. If I'll just listen, trust God's character, if I'll seek him on the basis of his word, he will provide. Do you believe that? God always provides faithfully to the things he commands, every time. And his character is fully enveloped and given through his word, even when his commands don't seem of their nature to be like a promise. Another reason why this is important is in Israel, God told them to give him the first fruits of their harvest and then they could enjoy the rest for themselves. Imagine with this little story here, what would Israel have been like if they just would have done that? Because her just giving is Elijah one portion first, she got to have this infinite supply of all this bread until the time would come when it would end, right? All she had to do was treat Elijah reasonably. The reality is, she was treating Elijah as more real being a stranger than Israel was treating their God, who was so near to him. And that is so easy, I think, to fall into through familiarity. Let's end the chapter. Chapter uh, 17, verse 17 through 24. Now it came about after these things, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called on the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? 
Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah. The life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word in your mouth is truth. Final point is God's power to restore. One of the things Elijah and Elijah deal with consistently through their lives is being accused of bringing harm. And God over them is accused of bringing harm over and over and over again, all their lives. One of the things that God answers, who's responsible for harm? Who's responsible for life? Consistently when God is accused, he immediately follows by an act of grace that proves that he was not responsible for the calamity that came upon uh, the person or the nation. This is the first resurrection in the Bible. Elijah and Elisha's lives are actually bookended by resurrection as well. So here with the widow of Zarephath, um, but also in uh, 2 Kings 13, really uh, unusual story that is easy to forget about. When Elisha was buried, a body was thrown into his grave, and when that body, the dead body that was thrown in his grave, touched his bones, it revived. And the man stood on his feet and went on his way. So even Elijah at death, not even having a full body anymore, just bones, somebody was risen from the dead just by touching his, his corpse. Uh, interesting thing about both those instances is death came into contact with life in both instances. Death came into contact with life. Think about this. A prophet is accused and misunderstood despite the blessings and the miracles he had performed already. A son is assumed to have been smitten by God for offenses. The son is taken to the place where he would later be resurrected and emerge again. Life comes into full contact with death, and on the third, life returns and the son emerges. When the son emerges, the prophet is vindicated and his word is confirmed as truth. Does that sound like a familiar story? You know, when we begin to think about things, we realize how true it is when Jesus said that it was necessary that the Christ suffer because it was written that he would even raise on the third day, right? Folks, this is the gospel according to Elijah. Romans chapter 4, verse 17, when uh, Paul's talking about the qualities of Abraham's faith, he mentions that he saw God as the one who could call into being things that do not exist and bring life to the dead. Those are the two things that God had done for this woman. He had called into being things that had not existed, the food that continued day by day, food that did not exist, and he brought life to the dead. Folks, this woman knew God as well as Abraham. She could trust God as a living person. The way that Abraham before the law saw God not just as someone to be obeyed, but somebody to be reconciled to. The healer of broken hearts, the restorer of what was once ruined. Um, 
What is truth? Uh, in verse 24, she understands that the word in his mouth is truth. What does that mean? Pilate once asked Jesus, what is truth? Is truth just something correct compared to something wrong? And, and yeah, that, that is in some sense truth, right? Something right compared to something wrong. But really, like, what is truth? Jesus also said in John 10, the same gospel where Pilate asked that question, I've come to give them life and to give it more abundantly. Truth is not just something correct. Truth is life-giving. Truth sustains us. Truth brings joy. She understood not just that Elijah was saying things correct, and that, that would be something she would have learned, but what really is the quality of the word that God speaks? What's, what's the deeper nature of what makes that truth? Because everything, everything that God says is meant for life. Last scripture and the lesson will be yours. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You know, just kind of putting these points together, Elijah didn't even really fully recognize he was giving this woman in these events a picture of Jesus. And mind you, it wasn't like a flawless picture, but it's a pretty accurate picture of Jesus' death and resurrection. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always caring about in the body of the, di- body, the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. You know, a way Elijah fulfilled that is he put his full body on the body of that boy three times. Took upon himself death in his mortal flesh, something unclean in the law of God, so that life from God could be manifested in the mortal flesh. If we listen to God, if we love him, you know what the goal is? You know what the goal is? That ultimately death work in us, that the life of Jesus can be manifested. You know, even if it's not like a perfect picture, even if people aren't flawlessly seeing Jesus in your life, God by his power and grace is able to bring to view the glory of his son even and especially through the weakness of these earthen vessels if we will just trust him and love him on the basis of his living person and promises, just like Elijah did. The lesson is yours. Um, If there's anything that needs to be made known before the church, if you need to be converted to Christ uh, by being baptized into his death and resurrection, know that God promises life. He promises it abundantly. God seeks zealously to find somebody he can protect and somebody he can restore, somebody he can commit himself to, but you must realize how dead you are without the life that God alone is willing to give. If there's anything we can do for you, come now while we stand and sing an invitation song.